Good morning, everyone. If you have your Bibles, won't you please open up to 2 Peter chapter 2. We're going to read from verse 1 to 10 this morning. 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 1 to 10. And I'm going to pray as we've just commissioned Joe for the work that God has set her apart to do in this new season. I'm going to pray this morning that we're going to sense a fresh commissioning from God's Word, that our hearts would be set on what Christ wants to say to us this morning, and that we'll be a people not just quick to listen, but a, a people quick to respond. And so, Father, this morning, as we come into your awesome presence, we thank you for the power of the Spirit that's working right now, that's making this Word alive and active, that's able to uh, penetrate our hearts this morning, Lord. And we are asking that even now, every person listening, and as I preach, Lord, might we have much help from heaven to hear what the Spirit of the Lord is saying to us at such a time as this. Lord, we want to be a people alive and ready to do all that you command us in this age. And we are praying today, Lord, that every word that comes out of my mouth will be from you, that every word will be heard correctly, Lord, that hearts will be strengthened, eyes will be opened, that, Lord, we would just see a new sense of your kingdom at work in the world today through your very word, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So, let's read together from Chapter 2, verse 1 of Second Peter. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality, and because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. If by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. And if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among the day, day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. So friends, today... We're reminding ourselves of what Peter is trying to do in this last letter before his death to the people that he loves, these Christians that he has served as an elder and pastor his, most of his life. Remember what he wants for these believers and what he wants for you and me as followers of Jesus is he wants them and he wants us today to live godly lives. He wants us to live for Jesus with all our hearts. And he is concerned that these Christians maintain their stability in the faith. 
and that they grow in the grace and the experiential knowledge of Jesus Christ. And so he's writing to guard these Christians against things that threaten their progress in the faith and things that threaten them living wholeheartedly for Jesus. And this is why today we're coming to a very painful section of Scripture. Peter is having to address something that is causing great hurt and great division in the churches that he's loved in what we call modern-day Turkey. And uh, friends, today I want to remind you, as I said last week, I would love to preach on anything else this morning rather than this chapter 2 of Second Peter. As you heard, as I was reading, it is, it is probably one of the most uncomfortable texts that uh, you can come across, the most direct text. Peter doesn't hold back any punches. But in doing so this morning, I really do hope that you can see our sincerity and honesty to come under the Word of God. We don't want to pick and choose what we think we need to live for Jesus. We want to be a people that recognize what Paul said to his beloved Timothy when he said, All Scripture, all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man and woman of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. We want to be a church. We want to be a people that takes every word of the Bible seriously because we believe it is breathed out by God for us. And so I must say, I have a, a bit of an awe and reverence over the scripture this morning, but I'm feeling a bit like Paul. He said to those elders in Acts chapter 20, verse 27, uh, he says, I have not shrunk back from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. There were some things that Paul didn't want to say. He wanted to shrink back from, but he showed courage because he knew that if we are going to be wholehearted followers of Jesus, we need the whole word of God. And so I'm not going to shrink back this morning from these awesome words of Peter because we believe that they're for us, not only for our good, but for God's glory. And so last week, if you didn't listen to the sermon, we'd encourage you, please, to do so. It's foundational for this chapter. But we looked at why is false teaching so destructive? And why does Peter address it so heavily here in chapter 2? Well, we said the fundamental reason for false teaching being so destructive is because what we believe affects how we behave. That is the essence of what's at stake here. What we believe as Christians affects how we behave for Christ. And so if we're going to live upright and godly lives for Jesus that are going to get his well done at the second coming, which we're going to talk a lot about today, then we have to follow upright, godly teaching that calls us to Jesus. But what these false teachers were doing is through their teaching, they were encouraging the exact opposite. They were encouraging sin and the way they were doing it was they were dismissing the reality of this awesome second coming of Jesus. And they were saying, man, don't you know that grace has come to set us free in inverted commas? They were twisting Paul's teaching of saying Christ died for sin and that is objective. Therefore, it doesn't matter how you live. It's never going to change that. That's what they were teaching. And so in doing so, they were disrupting the stability of the Christian's faith. They were excusing sin. They were preaching a half and twisted gospel. And what it was starting to do was, 
was it starting to, it was starting to allow licentiousness in the church. People were starting to indulge in passions which were forbidden because of its sin, their sin. And, and also the, the church was beginning to become the laughing stock of the world. Peter says something powerful. He says, because of this behavior, the world is blaspheming God and Christ. So Peter rightly can see the danger of this teaching and its disastrous impact upon the future conduct and stability of the faith of these believers. And so this is why he takes it so seriously. What we believe affects how we behave. And I, I'm going to ask for you to bear with me this morning. Peter makes a statement, which we're going to get to in our opening point. But then he uses a number of examples to previous case, which are quite technical. And this text is not easy this morning. And we're going to work our way through it. But at the end, Peter has profound application for what he is saying to both the person who might not this morning consider, consider themselves yet in Christ. And I hope we've got a number of them listening this morning. And for those who do. And so let's open up with verse 1. Uh, sorry, chapter, uh, point one. And that is the certainty of coming judgment. Peter opens up the section in verse three where he says, and in their greed, these false teachers' greed, they will exploit you with false words. And then he says this, their condemnation from long ago is not idle and their destruction is not asleep. Why would Peter say this about these false teachers? The other way we can translate that is saying their judgment is not idle and their destruction is not asleep. And this is what he wants to prove. He wants to prove that these false teachers are not going to get away with their ungodliness. And he's trying to prove this because these false teachers were teaching the exact opposite. They thought that this teaching about the second coming of Jesus and judgment was nonsense. That this judgment upon ungodliness was idle. That it was bedtime stories. That this ap apostolic teaching of consequences for sin was ridiculous. And we actually know what these false teachers were saying because Peter quotes him. This is what they were saying. They were saying, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. He says that in chapter 3, verse 4. In essence, what these false teachers were doing, they were scoffing. They were saying, you're talking about the second coming of Christ. It's been a long time, Peter. A couple of thousand years or more. Everything is continuing as it were. Where is the promise of his coming? This is idle gossip, nonsense. This is bedtime stories for people who are fast asleep, dreamers. And Peter says this, guys. You are not going to get away with your ungodliness. Your condemnation for your conduct is from long ago, and it is not idle, and your destruction is not asleep. You see, again, we, we must be mindful of what these false teachers were trying to do. It's informative for us this morning. What these false teachers were trying to do was they were trying to excuse their life of sin. Peter says this in 
chapter 3, verse 3, he says, Knowing this, first of all, that all scoff, that scoffers will come in the last days of scoffing, following their own sinful desires. That's what they were interested in. They wanted to get a teaching which would enable them to indulge their sinful desires. And this is very important for us because there are two main ways false teaching appeals to us as human beings. The first and often the most successful way is it appeals to our senses. It is sensual. And if you go back right to the beginning again, like we did last week, I want to remind you, how did Satan tempt Eve? It was when she saw how deliciously juicy that fruit was, how good it was in Genesis chapter 3, verse 6, how delightful it was to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And this is what makes false teaching so successful. Peter says, many will follow their sensuality. And you have teaching right now in the church of God that enables lives of sin. It is so popular because people finally find the excuse for what sin really wants in us, what it produces in us, which is to live as we please. To be able to have the excuse to indulge these uncontrolled passions of the sinful nature. That is the first and most successful way false teaching comes. But there's another. And I really want to caution us this morning because this is the one that gets sincere Christians. It is false teaching that appeals to our pride. What do I mean by that? On the one hand, you get false teaching that appeals to the flesh. On the other hand, you get false teaching that appeals to our pride. Pride in the form of self-righteousness. And I have to guard us against this. This is the one that will get the Christian that's been around for a long period of time and is zealous and sincere. It is the one who starts to find pride in their performance. And that's how these Pharisees were. They were so obsessed about the law, they crucified Jesus Christ. They were so proud of their self-righteousness, they could not see that they needed a savior from their sin. And that's how these legalistic cults work is they will so make your performance essential to your assurance of salvation that they will make you feel prideful. And when you give in to that teaching, you will start to become critical of the people around you. You start to say, look at those slovenly Western church and how they live and they don't do this and they don't do that like us. We are the true holy ones. We are the true righteous ones. Everyone else is just a, a fake, uh, a fake uh, copy of what the true faith is. That form of, of, of false teaching it appeals to the person's pride. Pride in the fact that on the grounds of our performance, we have assurance of salvation. And that's how Satan gets sincere Christians. But coming back to our text this morning, Peter goes back to some awesome examples in biblical history to prove these false teachers wrong. And remember, these false teachers were saying, where is this coming judgment? Where is the second coming of Christ? It's nonsense. It's taking an awful long time. And Peter says, guys, you are being so foolish. Do you know why? Because you don't have to wait for the second coming to see that God has shown he is going to judge ungodliness. There has been ample evidence already that God is going to step into the world or has stepped into the world and he has judged unrighteousness. He has judged ungodliness already. And he gives three powerful examples of this. And again, I want to point out to you, this is the value of knowing your Bible. 
because Peter doesn't have to go very far to show. You only have to get to Genesis chapter 6, as we'll see this morning, to see that God will judge ungodliness. And so let's get to point two this morning, which is looking at Peter's proof of the statement that this condemnation on ungodliness is certain. This judgment is certain. So three examples of certain judgments, starting off with the first one, which is the judgment on fallen angels. Now, this is the part where it gets a little bit technical, so stick with me for a moment, but it'll all make sense as we wrap it up at the end. Peter says this, For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell, or the Greek is Tartarus, and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. Peter says this, well, the very great example, first and foremost, if you're reading your Bible, is when God judged the fallen angels of this world. comes through in Genesis chapter 6, verse 1 to 6. And what was happening is there was this big population boom in this place called Mesopotamia. Uh, That is where you get the fertile crescent in the Middle East, where the rivers Tigris and Euphrates uh, are. And that really, according to historians, has been the cradle of civilization. And there was this flourishing of human population. And something at that point happened. We're not given all the details, but we do know how serious it is is we had these fallen angels called sons of God starting to marry human women, taking them as wives. And there are some debates around what the sons of God mean, but actually it's quite clear in Scripture, as you see in Job chapter 1, verse 6, and how Peter and Jude interpret this phrase, sons of God. They are angels. They are fallen angels. And what they were doing was they were starting to take human women as wives. Now, this is completely possible. We know that angels look like men. Joe is going to tackle Sodom and Gomorrah next week and righteous lot. We know that they can rock up. They look like men. They dress like men. They ate and drank. And uh, the men of Sodom even tried to molest them. So there was clearly uh, accessibility of angels to have interactions with fleshly humans. But the point of Peter saying all of this is, guys, do you see how ungodly things had become in the ancient world? It had even reached unnatural, perverse proportions. That the demonic got so close to human beings that there was even this weird intermarrying between these fallen angels and human beings. And God judged it. God said, this is not going to, I'm not going to permit this ungodliness to take place. And we know that after the flood, major changes happened in the angelic world. And Peter explains it like this, at that moment of judgment, which we're going to get to our second point. We, we know it from the human perspective of the flood. But at that moment, God unleashed judgment upon the fallen angels. And Peter explains it like this. He says, God committed them to chains or pits of gloomy darkness to be kept Until the judgment day, there was a restraining. There was God having a a verdict upon their behavior and committing them to chains and pits of gloomy darkness. And they are waiting for the judgment day to come where that, uh, as one commentator puts, that, that judgment is going to be more intensified and more public than ever before. But we know that this restraining took place because Jesus said it himself in Matthew chapter 22, verse 30. When he was asked about whether there would be marriage 
in heaven, Jesus answers, I think it was the Sadducees. He says, for in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. We know that something happened at the flood where there was a greater liberty of the fallen angels, even, we're not sure how it works, but to wed human women. After that, there was a restraint. Jesus said that was not permitted anymore. They were, they were committed to these dungeons, these chains, these pits of gloomy darkness. Something happened in the angelic world because of judgment upon the wicked ungodliness of these heavenly beings. Now, why would Peter give an example like that? What does that mean for you and me today? Well, this, as Eaton, who was such a help in this very strange part of, of Peter's uh, uh, evidence, says this, he says, it is the specific example of how supernatural status or power cannot save you from God's judgment. Do you hear, Peter? If God did not spare the angels, even these heavenly beings that had such power and status in heaven, even these glorious um, um, otherworldly beings could not escape the power of God's judgment. Ah, oh, that's so informative and so helpful because what these false teachers thought they were was super spiritual. They thought these guys were an authority unto themselves. They, they, like Peter says, bold and willful, they did not tremble as they blasphemed these heavenly beings, these glorious ones, whereas angels, though greater in might and power, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. Even when we know in Jude chapter 9, the archangel Michael taking on the devil, he didn't on his own authority say, get lost, you rubbish. He didn't say to this devil, ah, oh, and my own authority be gone. He said, no, the Lord rebuke you. So powerful and awesome was this angelic being Satan that the archangel needed the help and authority of the God of heaven to cast him out. But you see, these false teachers went where even angels feared to tread. They thought of this, they mocked at the thought of Satan. They mocked at the thought of the demonic they thought to themselves, this is absolute rubbish, that there could be a hell, that there could be some judgment upon the ungodly, upon this wicked, this whole concept of God judging evil. They laughed at it. They despised authority. They went where angels feared to tread. They were so prideful and arrogant in their ability to cast judgment on the truth. And friends, the world is no different today. It scoffs at the thoughts of the devil, at the thought of hell, at the thought of judgment. But what Peter is proving here, he's saying, guys, this is real. And even the angelic realm, the powerful, created heavenly beings that are greater in power and strength than human beings could not resist judgment against ungodliness when it came upon them. And so, friends, today, it does not matter your status in this world. It does not matter your accolades or your intellect. Your power and your pride will not save you from judgment against ungodliness. If God did not spare the angels, Peter is saying, how will you escape? The second is the flood. Comes through in verse 5. He goes on to say, if he did not spare the ancient world. So first he talks about if he did not spare angels. Now he says, if he did not spare the ancient world but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with just seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. 
You see, you only have to go a few verses after this judgment of these fallen angels in Genesis chapter 6, verse 1 to 6, to see that the whole world, and whether that means you hold to the known world, that's a local Mesopotamian flood, which there's very, very strong evidence for, or a worldwide flood, which is also held within the church, doesn't matter. What matters is this, is Peter is stressing that the vast masses of the ancient world was deluged with water, with the flood. It was another dramatic example of God judging ungodliness. In actual fact, the ancient world had become so ungodly that God said it grieved him that he had made man. Wow. And he had to start again through Noah's family. And you see, in this example, Peter is saying, guys, not even numerical supremacy, big numbers, can save you against God's judgment of the ungodly. No matter how great a community is, its numbers will not save it. And let me tell you one of the most fascinating things about history is how massive civilizations that reach such heights of achievement are no longer in existence. The Mycenaeans, the Minoans, the Egyptians, the Hittites, the Syrians, the Babylonians, the Persians, the Greeks, the Romans, where are these great civilizations that wanted to do things their own way and resisted the God of the Bible, revealed through creation? Let me tell you, they are nowhere to be found. And what is the point of Peter's example here? It is this. Please listen to me this morning. Is that just because everybody does something and gets away with it, it must be fine. Let me tell you, Noah is so instructive for us. The whole world can be going after a certain pattern and way of thinking and living. Every other human being might be doing it, but friends, that does not justify it. And let me tell you, although the whole world might be behaving in a certain way, and there's only one man left, there's only one Noah left saying, this is the herald of righteousness through his behavior and through his message, that this is the way the God of the Bible calls men and women to live. Even if there's only one man left, and the whole world is going after ungodliness, it will not save the world, nor will it save you. It will not justify or escape ungodly behavior. And the last example of today is this, Sodom and Gomorrah. And I'm just going to mention it very briefly because Joe is going to tackle it in greater detail next week. But Peter says this, let's just go a few. He hasn't even gotten out of Genesis. <laughs> let's go to Genesis chapter 18, verse and 18 and 19, those two chapters. And Peter says this, if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. There he comes again. He's building his case. So first of all, he says, if God didn't spare angels, if God didn't spare the ancient world. And then he says, don't you remember, if God didn't spare Sodom and Gomorrah, but wiped them out. Don't you know that this is an example for us today of how God is going to deal with ungodliness? There is not a more vivid account of God's judgment upon the ungodly than the eradication of Sodom and Gomorrah. Those cities had gotten so wicked, they even tried to molest the angels who came to rescue Lot. It is a sign of absolute carnality. It is a sign of 
human, the human race getting as low as it can possibly go in its violence, its sexual violence, in its ungodly and unnatural state. And God says, I've had enough. I can't take this anymore. And what the Lord does is he hurls fire and he hurls brimstone from heaven onto these two cities in the plain. And what happened is he made them extinct. They no longer existed. The only thing left were these pillars of smoke and ash. Why does Peter use this third example this morning? Is he shows that when God judges ungodliness, it is utterly complete. It is obliteration. It is a removal from existence. And some argue, and very convincingly, they haven't quite persuaded me yet, but they're doing a good job on this teaching, which is a legitimate theological standpoint on annihilationism, which says this, that souls in hell will eventually be wiped out like Sodom and Gomorrah, and all you will see are these piles of smoke. In other words, the argument of Scripture is this, ungodliness is not going to stand. It's going to be wiped out from existence, and that's why Peter even stresses and, and this is why people who hold to this teaching, I don't hold to it yet, but this annihilation, and they're saying this is an example. Peter's saying this is an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. It's an example of their extinction, where God is going to say, ungodliness in my heavens and earth is not going to be around. In chapter 3, verse 13, he says, the heavens are going to be burnt up, and what's going to be left? It says it's going to be a new heavens and new earth in which righteousness dwells. And the whole point is this, is whatever is righteous is going to live forever. Whatever is ungodly is going to be removed from God's creation. It will not only gain us nothing, it will be wiped out forever and ever and ever. And so he's saying, far from you glorying in your teaching, false teachers, you are going to become a nothing. You are going to become something which no one will remember ultimately. The wickedness which you are purporting and calling Christians to indulge in and give themselves to, God is so going to judge that any behavior that's done against God, it's going to be wiped out forever. It's going to be removed from existence. Just like Sodom and Gomorrah, it will become extinct. And what will be left are these piles of smoke and ashes because of God's righteousness having his way. Awesome words. But what do they mean for you and me today? How do we apply this to our lives? Well, friends, if you haven't heard it yet, you're going to hear it again. Judgment is going to come, and ungodliness will not go unpunished. We must take this so seriously. And I want to ask anybody listening this morning, do you know Jesus? Are you ready to stand before him? Because the day is coming, my friend, and it's called the day of judgment, where God is going to call to account every act of ungodliness. And unless you are ready to stand before Jesus, unless you are reconciled to God, you are going to be in eternal trouble. You see, how can we look at this chapter today and laugh our way through it and go, oh, let's just get to the good stuff, chapter 3, and there's great stuff. No, no, what Peter's slowing down to help us see is 
where you are before this God of heaven, it matters eternally. This church exists not to entertain, not to make you just feel good about life and to call you to a false hope. This church exists because we believe in the resurrection. We believe that there's life after death. We believe that the consequences of where you are with God is eternal in nature. And so for us this morning, we want to echo the, the gravitas, the power of this text today saying there is a judgment day coming. And friend, are you ready for it? Can you say with confidence when I stand before the Son of God who will judge the living and the dead? I am confident I will pass through and be received into glory. Forget about the coronavirus for a moment. Forget about your bank balance. Forget about the things that are upsetting you in this world. What God is wanting to zone you in on is saying, my friend, today, where do you stand before the thing that really matters, God himself, and before the things that really matter, eternity? Are you ready to meet the King of kings and Lord of lords? Because what Acts chapter 20 verse 30 to 31 says is the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now, now he commands everyone, all people everywhere to repent. Because he has fixed a day where he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. There is a day coming, my friends. And you know what? The world laughs at this. The world scoffs at it. You might even laugh at it, but let me tell you, the one who lasts, laughs, laughs, laughs the longest because Noah is the proof. There might only be one man holding in, who knows how bad it's going to get. But let me tell you, even if there's one man in the world preaching righteousness and the second coming of Jesus, and the whole world laughs, He'll be proved right. He'll be proved right. Friends, though the world might scoff at this today, it's a reality and it's coming. And that is why, in the words of the Apostle Paul, we plead with you as a church. We implore you today, in the light of heaven and hell, to be reconciled to God, to be at peace with the Lord of heaven and earth, to be at peace with your maker, to know the sense of your account is settled, that you have a sense that when you stand before him, he'll receive you. Don't think that he'll receive you today because of your good works or your status. That's the point of these, these examples of Peter. Don't think that you're a good enough person or that you're just living like everybody else and everything seems to be fine. No, no, you'll be judged by the standard of godliness. That's the point. He's not using everybody else's behavior as the standard. He's saying you'll be judged for ungodliness because godliness, the nature of God himself, is the standard by which you will be judged. You must look at your life in the light of him. Where do you stand today, my friend? Do you stand able to look at God in his glory and in his, his perfect ways and his perfect works and his perfect character and say, I match that? We must examine ourselves this morning. Because there is only one way to escape the judgment of God against the ungodliness of man. And that is to be like a Noah. Do you know what Noah did? He ran into the ark and he hid there. That's what you must do. There's only one place of rescue in the world. 
Nothing else in the flood could rescue the world except this one wooden ark. And there were only eight people who had the faith to see, according to the word of God, if they ran into that ark, they'll be rescued. The flooding judgment would come and they'll be rescued and they'll be able to enter into life, enter into a wonderful new beginning. And friends, that's what we must do. Where do we run as the human race? We run to the cross. There's only one ark in inverted commas for the human race to run into. It is the cross of Jesus Christ. It is him bearing the judgment of our sin upon his body, him shedding his blood. And if you will hide in Christ, the judgment will pass over you. And you must do it by faith this morning. You must be obedient to the word of God that says there is salvation in no one else in heaven and earth except Jesus Christ. What is your ark this morning, my friends? Is it your friends because they think you're so good? Is it your job because it gives you such status and wealth? What are you assessing your confidence before God? Because there is only one place this morning. And friends, we don't want to brush over this. We don't want to put it in a corner. We want to say to you, the thing that matters in your life is where are you running for rescue? Because there's only one, like the ark in the ancient world, there was only one source of rescue, and it is the cross of Jesus Christ. You have to hide in the cross. You have to run to Jesus and say, Jesus, you are my only hope. Your body and blood has borne the punishment, the judgment upon my sin that I might go free. God must judge the ungodliness of mankind and praise God. He's produced someone who can bear that judgment, Jesus Christ. He's produced an ark. He's produced a means of rescue. Have you run to him today? Now again, friends, I could talk about nice motivational sermons this morning. This is the stuff that matters. And we are burdened for you. We are burdened for you. This isn't, this isn't a game. This isn't something that we are just wafting through life, hoping to get the most out of it, and who knows what happens after death. We know what happens after death. We can see it in the Bible. We can see it in Scripture that God is going to judge the ungodly. And friends, we are burdened for you this morning. Be reconciled to God. You have to run to that cross with your whole heart, and you have to see like that ark, Christ is the only means of rescue for me. That's it. That's it. But friends, today, I hope that you're almost sick of me saying this, but I believe in Peter's philosophy, which says, I want to stir you up by way of reminder. Don't you know that judgment upon ungodliness is not just for the unbeliever, it's for the believer. How foolish it would be for us to think that this is just an assessment of whether you are in Christ or not. No, my friends, I want to remind you again, over and over, that God is going to assess our lives. Did you hear me this morning? He's going to assess everything we have done in this life. And we are not going to be judged based on whether we are in Christ or not, our status, that is settled as believers in Christ. Those who've run into the ark are rescued. But it's what we have done with our status. And I'm burdened this morning. Can I just share my heart? I am worried about a flippancy in the church around life and around our hearts for Jesus. Now, I don't say this because I, I want to censure anybody this morning or make you feel guilty. I say this because I care about what God is going to say to you on that day, and I want to see you run so well. You see, when we forget this teaching, 
we live as though the best thing has happened to us already. We've got Christ. We've got it all. What's the point? We'll make it into heaven. That's not the biblical teaching of salvation. Egypt and deliverance from that land was just the start. There was a vision of a promised land where God calls us to faith. And like Moses could say, he left the fleeting pleasures of sin in Egypt and he walked as though he could see God. He could see where this was all going. He could see the gravitas and glory of what was at, at stake for the one who held to faith in Jesus. And he was so careful to walk in the ways of the Lord because he knew this mattered not just for God's glory, but for his well done. And friends, today we have such an opportunity and a God is so gracious and kind and generous. I can tell you today, if he gave us his own son, how much more is he wanting to give us so much in obedience to Jesus? He's a God who loves to bless his kids. And today that is available for you. I just want to call us again to a perspective and focus which has shaped all of Hebrews 11. You want to read those, those men and women of faith? They had such an understanding that this life echoes into the next. And far from being careless and flippant in the way they made their decisions, in the way they ordered their lifestyle, in the way they ran their lives, they were so careful to walk by the Spirit because they knew, they knew that there was a reward coming that they wanted. And Paul said it like this, I press on to win the prize. They were so motivated. They were so focused. When you're with them, they were about one thing, which was the glory of Christ and the upward call to be remembered by him as a good and faithful servant. Our works will pass through the same fire as what hell is. Jesus calls it Gehenna. And what is ungodly will be burnt up by the same fire that will deal with the wicked, the unbeliever. Our life will pass through. And what does Paul say? Man, all that is hay, stubble, and nonsense served for ungodly purposes will be burnt up, will be lost, will be extinct. Oh, but there will be a wonderful moment where whatever passes through that fire that is righteous, that is righteous, will stand forever. And I want to say to you this morning, If you're thinking to myself, this talk about judgment on ungodliness, you don't really feel this pressure upon you in your walk with the Lord. Or maybe as a person living today saying, I'm enjoying my life just as it is. God hasn't said anything to me about, not, uh, about sin in my life. I'm quite happy going along with how I'm living. Can I say to you this morning, why does it feel so easy not to live for Jesus and to get away with sin? Well, it's because God is so patient with us. He's so kind. I read yesterday in my Bible reading plan, Romans chapter 2, and Paul says, don't presume, don't presume on God's patience and kindness. Do you know why we think we'll get away with it? It's because God is so gentle with us. And today, my friends, can I just share the heart of God for you? As Peter put it so beautifully, he says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient, is patient towards you, 
not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burnt up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done in it will be exposed. But this is the heart of God for you. He's giving you time. He doesn't come down breathing. Sometimes he can if we're in bad trouble. He can be like a lot, like Joe's going to preach next week. He can rip you out of the fire. But let me tell you, God is so patient with us. He's so kind with us. He's so good to us. But don't mistake that for letting us off the hook. He is a spacious place, as the psalmist says. But it's for repentance, not for licentiousness. And I just want to end today with what is the last and powerful application for this text. Is Peter understands the difficulty of not going with the crowd as a Christian. This is so important. This is the brilliant pastor coming through. Peter knows. He knows how hard it is. If you're going to take living this godly life seriously, it's going to be so hard. Because what he is calling us to is difficult and lonely at times. And this is why he uses the example of Noah and Lot. And I want to focus in on Noah this morning in this last few minutes that we have. Is, friends, Peter uses Noah and Lot to show you how much pressure a godly person can be under. Noah is the last one left in his day and age. Out of an entire ancient world, only eight people are saved. That's how many are left. And actually, only Noah is called righteous in his behavior. His family had enough faith to step in the ark, but their lifestyles are not called righteous. And in terms of godly living, Noah was considered to be alone in righteousness. Now, why would Peter use Noah as such a good example? It's because Peter wants you to know, believe it today, if you're going to lead a godly life, it will lead you to a place of loneliness. And again, I want you to hear my heart this morning. What you are facing outside is a world that is not interested in pleasing and following Jesus and let me tell you how disinterested it was for Noah. Such an encouragement for me this morning. I hope it is for you. In verse 5, Peter calls Noah a herald of righteousness. This man for hundreds of years, he lived a very long life, shared this message of Yahweh, this covenantal God who saves by the blood. He shared how Yahweh is this upright God. He was a herald in his lifestyle and speech. And do you know, not a single person believed Noah except his family. And it will be the same for you, Christian. There will be times when you will share Jesus, share your faith. You'll share it with your family and your colleagues, and they won't believe you. And then in actual fact, they could possibly even reject you, and you're left standing alone. And Peter knows that this is what the godly life leads to. And today, my friend, if you are going to take Peter seriously, you will experience what Noah was, which was to embrace the shame of obedience to God. Can you imagine what it was like for Noah? He had to build this ark, and people, whilst he was building, would walk past this giant conspicuous thing. This wasn't a hobby. It wasn't like a little thing of going to his tent and, and do his nice little hobby thing, you know, build your model design. This was an ark, and people could walk past and say, you're building this on dry land. Why are you? 
Rain hadn't even come on the earth. Can you imagine that? He's talking about this deluge that's going to come from the heavens. They laughed, my friend. They scoffed. This man had to bear such shame for the obedience to God. And we have to, like Jesus, like the cross, exposed to the world, naked, hanging on the cross. We have to despise the shame of what it means to live for Jesus. Paul put it like this to his beloved Timothy. He says, indeed, all who desire to live, not think about and know about the godly life, all those who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Why? Because the Christian's life is like an ark. Everybody is to see it when you're not going along with the world, but you're prioritizing Christian fellowship sexual purity. You believe the Bible. They laugh at you when you believe the Bible. Your prayer life, you give your money to the kingdom. There are things that you do that the world laughs at and says, this is ridiculous. What are you doing this all for? Let me tell you what, my friend, that's what it means. And at times for the Christian to serve Jesus, it means to stand alone. Are you willing today, Christian, to do that? Will you be a Noah? Even if no one listens to you, will you stand? And I take my time this morning because I really believe there's someone listening here and you are under pressure like Noah and Lot to yield to pressure from family, to a partner, to a colleague, to friends. There is something in your life that is putting pressure on you to compromise your faith. And the word of the Lord to you today is be a Noah. Stand. Don't be willing to go with the masses. Be willing to be despised for your ark, this conspicuous living and faith in God. Even people ridicule it. You stand, my friend, you stand. Because although today you might feel alone, I will tell you this, you are not going to stand alone because the Lord will stand with you. Like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, he'll stand with you in the fire. Like David, when you're so depressed, he'll bring a Samuel and a Jonathan to to give you such a ministry of upliftment. Like Elijah, he'll send ravens to you. Like Jeremiah, he'll burn in your bones so you can't keep silent about Christ. Like Jesus, you had ministering angels to him on that night when he sweat blood in the Garden of Gethsemane. The Lord knows, the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials. Like Stephen, even if it means to glory, let me tell you this Christian faith might lead to martyrdom. You don't know what's out there. The rescue might be called, be called home or it could be to safety. For Stephen, it was to be called home. You'll even see Jesus in your hour of death standing and applauding and saying, well done, my boy. Well, you're going to get awesome applause when you get into heaven. He'll even cheer you on in your hour of death. And like Peter, he'll give you the faith to be crucified upside down. How can I say that this morning? Because don't you know, Christian, you have received a faith of equal standing with Peter. Ours is a delivering faith. Ours is a faith that enables us to stand. SBC, what is the world watching in you? Are they seeing an ark of godliness? They might laugh. You might stand alone, but let me tell you now, you stand because the Lord will be standing with you. And on that day, on that day, you will see before heaven and earth, God honoring righteousness, my friend. And you can think of it like this. Though you might feel alone right now, on that day, you will have all of heaven standing with you and celebrating what you did for Jesus. You will stand. Ah, friends, today this all matters. But it comes down to this. Are you going to take seriously, like Peter does, what is to come and live in the reality of it now? It brings such purpose. It brings such peace. It brings such clear-mindedness in such a confused age. Let me tell you, Christians are to know what they are about. And the world needs to see a people of certainty, a people that know where we're going. They aren't floundering and flummoxed 
by all the chaos in inverted commas, they can see that God is at work in the nations and calling all men everywhere to repent because what's going to come is far greater than what we know now. And we live like it. We live like it. Friends, let's close our eyes and consider what we've heard this morning. What has God been saying to you? Have you committed your life to Christ? Do you believe that God sent his son Jesus to die on the cross for you? Have you taken hold of that by faith? Have you turned away from being the leader of your own life? Have you turned away from your sinful behavior and have you turned towards Christ and committed your whole life to him? When you do that, the Holy Spirit comes and you start to want to please God. You start to want to honor Him. He helps you turn away from the sinful behavior and He helps you to live a life that is for God's glory. It's a decision you can make this morning. And if God is revealing Himself to you this morning, I want to encourage you, wherever you are, turn to Him now. Decide to put your life in his hands and to live for him. Put all your trust in Jesus alone for your salvation. To the believer listening to this message this morning, there's a reminder for us that sin is serious and God will judge it. We need to take stock this morning and look at our lives. Is there something we've left harboring there because God seems to be okay with it. There's a reminder this morning that He's not. And the reason why He hasn't dealt with it yet is because of His own kindness, His own loving patience towards us. But let's not take that for granted this morning, church. Let's take advantage of the fact that God is patient. God is kind. He is giving us time to deal with everything in our lives. To purify us. And so this morning, if the Holy Spirit is putting His finger on something in your life, I want to encourage you, church. Confess it and repent. And come and run hard after the Lord. He will help you live for His glory. Lord, we want to thank you this morning. We thank you for your loving kindness, your patience, your goodness. You are so, so good to us, Lord. You are so gracious. Thank you, Lord, for giving us time to make things right with you. I want to pray, Lord, that as a church at SBC, we would be purified by you.
like a, through the refiner's fire. And that what we do for you, the side of heaven will stand. It will stand that test of the fiery flame and bring you much glory. In Jesus' name, amen.
sing holy, holy.
Yeah. 
Father, we worship you this morning. It's been such a blessing to be in your presence together as a church. We want to say, Lord, we love you. We live for you. you let your name be glorified in all of the earth, in the heavens and the earth. Everything worships and adores you. And so we choose this morning to praise your name and to give you glory. As we go out into the rest of our days and, and the weeks ahead, Lord, I pray that you would stir uh, a fire within us to uh, seek hard after you, to be obedient to everything you, you say to us to do. And Lord, would you use our lives to glorify your name. In Jesus' name, amen. Church, what a wonderful Sunday it is. May you go out today and uh, enjoy it, and we'll see you again next week. Oh, praise the Lord.